Welcome to Politically Pissed, the only podcast that is sad to see Jay-Z go from the cover of Vibe to the cover of Forbes. Yeah, guns close doors to the system. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them. We're solid and we don't need to kick them. This is no Southeast and Welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Eris and Katya. Hey. What's good, y'all? And we have a special guest today. Cole West is with us. Go ahead and say hi. Hi, guys. So, Cole, you were a former representative of House District 37, correct? Right. But you were an attorney before that, correct? I uh, was an attorney and still am an attorney. You know, still I, am, eh? It's kind of funny that we say practicing law. I don't know when we actually get to do it. I guess we're just, we just keep practicing. <laughs> You're never really like, yeah, perfect at it. Exactly. So, yeah. right. <laughs> what kind of law is it that you practice? So I do employment law and I do workplace safety. I grew up in a coal mining town on the Western Slope and I've continued to work for a lot of uh, mining clients and, and in the workplace safety area, but primarily employment and workplace safety. Did you grow up here in Colorado? I grew up in the mighty town of Paonia. Do you know where that is? Not at all. Okay, so <laughs> Paonia is in Delta County, so it's about 70 miles east of Grand Junction. Uh, my high school graduating class had 68 people in it, um, and I like to tell folks that my high school was so small that I played football, so um, <laughs> <laughs> I, all of 5'7", and, and, but yeah, I have to say that you know the Western Slope still remains very close to my heart in terms of, of what I consider to be home, but I've lived in Denver for most of my adult life and consider you know Denver to, to really be my home, but yeah, still uh, have a lot of family and good friends on the Western Slope. So you have more of a, I guess... I don't want to downplay it all, but it's like a small town perspective and stuff like that. Like you've been around people that don't necessarily live in the city and have different perspectives and ideas, right? Uh, you know, when you live in a small town, I, I think there are advantages and disadvantages to that. The, the disadvantage is that everybody knows what everybody else is doing, but <laughs> the advantage is I think that, you know, you really feel a sense of community and folks looking out for each other and understanding that we rise as a community and we fall as a community and I guess I was sort of raised with those values and I think uh, our country could use a little bit of that right now. Civility would be a nice thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well let's talk about your representation a little bit. You were picked to fill a seat that was vacated by Jack Tate in 2016 correct? That's right. Okay and then Jack Tate moved into the Senate to fill David Balmer's seat? Correct. But you were only there for three years then right? So I was there for three sessions. 20... Uh, 16, 2017, and 2018. And you lost to Tom Sullivan, who now takes the seat. Um, how do you feel about Tom Sullivan, like as far as taking your place and representing the constituency that you did before? Yeah, one of the great things about our system is the the voters uh, really get to to make those decisions and decide what policy directions their communities make. And I, you know, I will say that there are policy disagreements that I have with Representative Sullivan, but I respect the decision of the voters and. And support him. He's my representative, and and I wish him well, and hope he continues to, to work uh, hard for our district. So uh, I respect Representative Sullivan, and you know look forward to his continued service. So there's a couple of things I think you had in common with him when you were in the legislature. I'll talk about first a couple of the committees you were on. You were on the Judiciary, the Legal Services, and the Legislative Council. Also, business affairs and labor. Okay. I, I, I spent some time on. Did you, did you say state affairs? Uh, I did not. No. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I spent one one session on the beloved state affairs committee. But uh, you know, 
judiciary spent uh, occupied most of my time during my last two years in office. Is that the one you enjoyed the most? Well, you know, I, I guess uh, you could say it's. Uh, um, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> but we had a, a very, very heavy workload in in the judiciary committee. But you know, some of the issues that I really worked hard on were things that the judiciary committee worked directly on. One of the things that I'm most proud of is my work on the issue of criminal justice reform. And I spent a lot of time working on the way that we budget our Department of Corrections. I think, you know, we spend over, uh, it's, it's a massive component of our state's budget. And one of the issues that I have worked closely with Representative Herod on grew out of our frustration that the budget just continued to go up and up and up. We kept hearing from the Department of Corrections that the sky was falling and that we were going to have, you know, this uh, this massive disaster in DOC. And we've got to start thinking about corrections differently. And we've got to start recognizing that it's called the Department of Corrections for a reason, and that is these individuals are returning to our community, uh, and we're, we just haven't done an effective job in terms of, of managing that. So it's one of the things that, that I appreciate in my time in judiciary is, is we got to work a lot on those issues. I really appreciate that you said that. We had a guest on here a while back, Mike Wiseman. You might know who he is. He does a lot of work on the Judiciary Committee with criminal justice reform as well. How do you feel about the new bills that are coming through, like the one that makes every minor possession of drugs a misdemeanor instead of a felony? Do you think that would help in that? I think it's forcing us to have a conversation about uh, what we're using our, our Department of Corrections for. And if you view it as I do that it's a place where it's primarily should be used for folks that pose a threat to, to public safety. And we've had, I think, a, a pretty robust discussion about what, time, what types of crimes justify what types of punishment. And we've, let's face it, we've made mistakes in terms of, of the ways that, that, we've, that we've, you know, the decisions that we've made on what gets certain types of criminal punishment. But those decisions were made at a certain point in time in history. I think thinking about some of those issues is differently now. We incarcerate people for, for nonviolent drug offenses. Are those things that, that, that uh, might, uh, you know, sh- should uh, have some different form uh, of, of uh, treatment or punishment? And treatment, I think, is the operative word that we've tried to, no. to look at because putting people in cages people who may have substance abuse issues, some uh, folks that may have mental health issues. We're not doing, doing those folks a disservice because I said before, they're returning to society and we want them to be successful when they return. So I'm glad that we're having that discussion, not only as a state, but as a country about whether or not we're, we're using these dollars wisely. Well, going to that fact, I'll, I'll say I'm, I work for the public defender's office. I've done some work for them lately. And to be honest, a lot of the people I see going to jail that, especially for like driving under revocation or something like that, driving without a license, seems to be the biggest waste of our money that could possibly be locking these people in cages, like you're saying, who don't even have like a substance abuse issue or anything like that. Maybe they fell behind on their child support. Maybe they owe some fines and fees or something like that from before for a ticket and they lose their license and then they end up going to jail because of it. It seems just ridiculous. I mean, how do you feel about things like that with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, first and foremost, there has to be accountability. So when we pass laws or the city passes ordinances, there has to be compliance. And if we don't want those laws to be on the books anymore, then we should repeal those laws or we should we should reform those laws. But it, it's the job of law enforcement to enforce the laws that are on the books. 
But the question I think that we're coming to grips with is, is the punishment matching the crime? And is, is, the, is there some you know, corresponding uh, appropriateness between the punishment and the crime? And I hope we'll continue to have that conversation because I think, as I said, we spend a lot of money uh, in this area in the state's budget. And if we're not efficient and we're not uh, effective with those dollars, uh, we don't see a result. Of course, one of the biggest impediments that we have is TABOR. So how do you see um, TABOR as it affects things like criminal justice reform and our ability to manage a state budget in a state that continues to grow? So, I mean, one of the, the great things about TABOR and this, you know, I, I know uh, it remains pretty popular with, with folks in our state. And there are a couple of components to TABOR and then sort of split them out. The first one is, should we ask voters uh, whether or not we want to increase their taxes. And, you know, what I keep hearing from folks is they like that component of TABOR. What we're going to, uh, I think, talk about this year in the form of uh, referendum CC, and that is whether or not the limits on the size of government should is something that, that should be adjusted. I believe in the wisdom of the voters, and I think if government can go to them and make a compelling case that we want to spend dollars in a certain area, the voters will 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 authorize that. If you go back to referendum C and Governor Owens advocating for the rollback of of, of Tabor for a certain certain period of time, uh, the vote you know he made a compelling case. The voters uh, voted for that. Um, I live in the Cherry Creek School District. And one of the things that I tell folks when they talk about Tabor and then we need to get rid of Tabor, and that is look to see how effective schools are in terms of making the case for mill levy bond elections. And in Cherry Creek, we vote for them every single time because our board goes to the voters and says, we want this much money. We want to spend it on these projects. We want to spend it in these schools. Here are the things that we want to do with it. And voters have confidence that the money will be spent where, they, where the board uh, says they're going to spend it. One of the problems we've had in our state, every time we go to them and say we want more money for education or we want more money for transportation, uh, frankly, voters are cynical about that because they don't trust that the legislature will allocate the dollars where they need to go. So if we want to look at uh, reforming Tabor, maybe government should do a better job in terms of being true to its word and spending dollars where it says it's going to spend those dollars. You make a fair statement there at the end with spending dollars where they should be spent. I mean, there's a lot of, I think it's pork, for lack of a better word, to cut from certain places. But, I mean, you talk about Cherry Creek School District being one of the few that repeatedly approves the mill levies and stuff like that. Well, when you leave the city, you get to a lot of places where they don't. They don't approve those. They don't give the funding to the schools where they need it. Schools are being cut back to four-day weeks and having to close schools and stuff like that. If Tabor wasn't there and people didn't have to approve those, the government can allocate money for those schools. I mean, do you see another way maybe that we can do that with Tabor to make sure all those schools receive funding? Well, I, I, we could probably do an entire show based on the way we, we, <laughs> yeah. we fund public education in this state, and it's something that I've spent some time as an attorney working on. Our state's constitution requires that we fund public education in a manner that's thorough and uniform. And we've had litigation about what thorough and uniform means yeah. in the form of the Lobato <laughs> case. I grew up in Delta County. I certainly tell you that the per pupil, fund, per pupil funding in Delta County is nowhere near what it is in Cherry Creek. So I understand that we have wide disparity in our state in terms of the educational experience that students have. My point has been for many, many years 
that your educational experience shouldn't depend on what your zip code is or what county that you live in. And the way we fund public education this, in this state is unacceptable. It's inequitable. And it, it depends on your property tax base in terms of where you get uh, dollars for schools. So I think there are a lot of ways that we can, can take a hard look at budgeting. I've been in discussions with folks recently about how we fund our criminal justice system and how we pay district attorneys. You mentioned you work, have done some work for the public defenders. Public defenders are paid fairly uniformly across the state, but district attorneys' budgets come from counties. Mm-hmm. So often those DA budgets get wrapped up in county politics, and unfortunately, when you don't have a properly staffed DA's office, it takes a long time to get a case to trial, and your experience with the criminal justice system is different in some counties just you know, based on what the budget numbers look like. So I think we can do a much better job in this state of uh, being uh, equitable with our dollars so that r- the rural parts of our state and the urban parts of our state are treated fairly. Saeed and I were at his girlfriend's uh, birthday party last night, and us and another friend of ours were talking just touching the topic of politics and everybody got up and walked away because I think they all assumed that we were hardcore hippies or something like that (laughs) but it's and these people are are people we had a Republican there we had a guy who's probably leaning to the left I think several people of just various across the board leanings and I think ever since 2016 politics is a dirty word. I wonder how we're going to bring ourselves back together again, because it's important to have conversations with people who disagree with you and not make them evil. Honestly, like I, I don't feel very Democrat myself, but I feel divided amongst the Democrats. I don't know about the Republican Party, but I felt very frustrated within the Democratic Party. There's a lot of division in it. But you don't know about the Republican Party? I mean, I used to be well, one, I, and then you I can't me to speak, jump sides. I can't so. speak for them. <laughs> I can't speak for them. And I feel po- talked over, and I feel like nobody's asking my opinion. And I sometimes you do, if I were to speak my opinion, I would be vilified. So in your opinion, uh, Representative West, what can we do? What are action steps that anybody can take to make the United States a better place to live? I mean, one of the things that we're doing today, and that's listening to each other, we've lost the ability to listen to each other. I grew up in a Truman Kennedy Democratic family, and my grandmother was you know, delegate to national conventions, and, and I grew up working on campaigns, and I was a Democrat until... 1997. I ran for office in 1996 as a Democrat for the state state house on the Western Slope, and you know I I I felt that views primarily on environmental issues were more aligned with with the Republican Party. I grew up in a, a mining community in a mining town, and I've been a Republican since 1997. But it doesn't mean that I've lost the ability to find things in common with folks on the other side of the aisle. And you know, neither party has all the answers, and. No. Yeah, I think there's a reason why most young people look at the, the two political parties and have decided that neither one of them represent them. I have two millennial daughters. They're both unaffiliated, and I'm, we've had conversations about that. And the way that we treat each other in politics and the way Democrats and Republicans treat each other and don't talk to each other and don't work on issues together is very frustrating. And political parties are, are, are either going to have to learn how to get past some of the division we have in our country. And there are reasons why and the way we, we treat each other has a lot to do with what I see on a national level. But I can tell you from my time at the State House, 
There are folks that work in a very bipartisan way down there, and I took great pride in the fact that every bill that I passed in the 2018 session was bipartisan, and that was important to me because I, I didn't think my party had all the answers. Also, and also in a split, a capital where, where the Republicans hold one chamber and the Democrats hold the other, I think that fosters a little bit more bipartisanship, and we had a little less of that at the Capitol uh, this year. I want to move into the dealing with the party and stuff like that. The idea of, so for the Republicans, it was the Tea Party came in and started pushing more towards the right, correct? And then for the, for the Democrats, I feel like it's the working families parties coming in and pushing them more towards the left. That's right or left? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day already. And, okay, so Republicans are pushed more to the right by the Tea Party. Working families seems to be pushing the Democrats more left. Do you feel like there's a space for a third party to grow in there? Or how do you feel that this is going to actually move forward with all these unaffiliates like your, your children who are looking at both parties and being like, nah, I'm good? I think either the parties are going to adapt and appeal to a broader spectrum of voters, or we are going to see the emergence of, of third parties. And frankly, I think that's a, that's a good thing for a political process. Because if you look at you know some other countries, they have a number of political parties that are a part of the a part of the process. Why do why do two political parties in this country have a monopoly in terms of of the way that we have policy discussions? And the more you see gridlock, the more you're going to see frustration that people have with our two-party system. And what I'm hoping is that the younger generation looks at this and says, this is not acceptable. We're not dealing with issues in a responsible way. Let's, uh, let's have conversations about bringing more, more voices to the table. I think that's a good thing. Thank you for your uh, support of Tom Sullivan. And uh, that was courageous. And I know uh, former, I think it's Senator John Andrews, also supported him you guys were and i'm sure there probably were more people who spoke out against the recall against um, tom sullivan i know i i'm gonna assume you guys got backlash or i.e threats from wackos on the internet because having worked as an aide in politics forever i've received some on behalf of some of my bosses um, just some yeah, just yeah. Some. <laughs> what made you do that i um th- there the the pin tweet on on my Twitter page is Martin Luther King quote that I love, which says you know the, it's always uh, I'm, I'm going to mess up the quote here, guys. <laughs> the time is always right to do the right thing, or, or some, and I, I think I just messed up the quote. But it seemed to me very obvious that this was not an appropriate use of of recall authority. And as I said about Representative Sullivan, while he was my opponent, and while I disagree with him on policy issues, we have to at some point govern. And you have to respect the decision and the will of the voters. And I felt uh, that it was the, the right thing to do to let folks know that I thought that the, the, the decision of the voters should be respected and Representative Sullivan should be able to, to serve out his term. And it's his job next year in the election to make his case for reelection. And, you know, I, I, the, these recall elections, I think, also play into the cynicism that people have about politics. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I said in, in my, uh, my uh, op-ed that I wrote was that I primarily see these recalls as a for folks to raise money. And it's, it's a way for people to, to collect data on voters and, and to, to raise dollars. And then they walked away from this recall effort, and I think that even heightened the cynicism that folks have about this effort. So if someone's acting inappropriately in office or there's malfeasance or unethical conduct, then absolutely that you know recall authority exists for us for voters to remove somebody from office uh that wasn't 
the circumstance here. So uh, I just felt like it was uh, the appropriate thing to, to, to do to speak up and, and to let folks know that I didn't support it. So let's move into the 2020 races. Uh, you want to start with the top of the ticket or bottom of the tickets? Um, that depends. Would we consider Hick at the bottom of the ticket? Because I would. Oh, I meant, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I meant more like a presidential, senate, or congressional. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I'm still going. We'll I agree with Harris. <laughs> we'll just start at the top then. There's a bunch of people running on the Democratic side. There's Donald Trump on the Republican side. Do you support Donald Trump? Uh, I voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and I'm evaluating, uh, um, you know, what what happens in in 2020. I'll, I'll tell you that there, I think there, that that the policies of, of you know President Trump have been effective in terms of uh, economic growth, and so I, our economy is very strong. I would just appreciate him uh, having a little bit different tone in terms of the way he leads the country, because I think tone matters. I think the way a president acts and uh, conducts business matters and i'd like to see a little more professionalism in this president but i think overall our country is 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 in good shape i think if i were voting today i'd probably vote to re-elect the president but i I, uh, i'm going to be watching this race very very closely and watching to see uh, what kind of of case uh, that the candidates make to the country you know and let's face it most of the uh, most of the voters are going to be in the unaffiliated ranks Mm -hmm. and i hope that that the the republican nominee uh, which I presume will be the president and the Democratic nominee will speak to those voters and not just speak to the their bases because I, I think we're doing a disservice to the to the entire process when we do that. Well, I think you go to my next question yeah. then with that is Great the, point. Idea, the idea of if somebody was to primary Trump, how would you feel about that? Because like, most Republicans generally just fall in line. So, Yeah, I, I don't see a viable uh, primary challenger to, to Donald Trump. At least one that I don't see one yet. Not even Kanye West? <laughs> Didn't know Kanye had announced yet, so uh. <laughs> Jay Z. No, Jay Z. <laughs> That's understandable. I get that. You support your guy. You're behind him. You just wish his tone was a little different. That's basically not it. a little different. Um, you know, I I think he has the ability uh, to do great things for our country. But when you don't unite people, when you don't uh, raise people up, I think you divide the country. So the question is, is that part of his strategy? Is he doing that intentionally? This is just his style. But I think the way you govern matters. And I know I'm repeating myself, but it just does. It matters to me as an American. It it matters in terms of the way we treat each other. And we talked earlier about listening to each other and having civil discourse and, and debate that's respectful. We're not doing that in this country. And that's very discouraging to me. So one of the things I think that's, uh, become a bit uncivil in the debates is the issue of ICE and the enforcement of you know immigration laws in the country. Trump said that starting, well, it was supposed to be starting today, they were going to push up on ICE raids and kick more people out. Uh, he said he's going to put a two-week hiatus on that. How do you feel about ICE? We've got to stop playing games with immigration policy in this country. Thank and, you. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted yesterday about my frustration with that uh, appalling hearing in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals last week where we had a lawyer from the Department of Justice arguing that uh, safe and sanitary conditions don't include sleeping, soap, toothbrushes, yeah. toothpaste. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and this relates back to, I think it was a 1997 settlement where we uh, were the... Where the uh, 
they agreed that there would be safe and sanitary conditions. And we had a DOJ lawyer who was saying, well, because soap or because toothpaste wasn't enumerated in this settlement agreement, then, you know, these things aren't required. And, you know, these three judges were incredulous. They were like, do you mean to tell me that things like soap and the ability to sleep um, is not related to safe and sanitary conditions? So I, I find that the, the whole immigration debate in this country is completely off the rails. You've got, uh, you know, the, the diehard supporters of the president who uh, want to build a wall and want to deport folks. And, you know, look, I, I think that immigration law should be respected. We also have to understand that, stand that immigration laws in this country are not working, and it's a broken system. So where, where do we find ourselves uh, if we – and I think there's some agreement across the country that it, that it is broken. What do we do? Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, I, I know a bunch of Democrats that agree it's broken. might be for slightly different reasons and mostly now because Donald Trump's pushing more, like the rhetoric you're talking about. But we can't go into inhumane – Bingo. Yeah, when you're talking about sanitary conditions, to say soap is not part of a sanitary condition, that's just absurd. The pictures of people piled up like animals and cats in El Paso, not, that's I mean, not okay. When kids start dying in custody, yeah, they've, it starts to become a real They've issue. had nine people die since September, and they haven't had anybody die in custody for 12 years before that. Yeah. That's not okay. And then are you okay with, I guess, local governments not supporting that? Like, you know, Denver's come out against it, sanctuary cities, as they would say, and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I think that, that federal, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty clear to me that federal law is supreme on immigration. So the rub has always been, um, do, do local law enforcement folks have an obligation? Uh, I, and I, I don't think that they can do things that undermine uh, enforcement of our immigration laws. Um, I don't quite frankly understand what the what the term sanctuary city means, and maybe you can explain. I think probably a lot. I don't of either. So, you know. The idea, as far as I understand it, is that local governments and municipalities won't use their police force in order to assist. Is essentially what the sanctuary city means. They can't stop them from coming in because, like you said, the federal law is the supreme law of the land. It is what it is, and they can't stop ICE from coming in, but they can't. They don't have to help them. Is what they're saying. That's essentially what I got. But again, okay, so this is the slippery slope for me is if you think back to when we had the Montgomery boy, um, Montgomery bus boycotts or any of those things where you have federal agencies and authorities saying that people need to be protected, that law enforcement needs to comply, and then law enforcement doesn't. We've seen that that also doesn't work for civilian populations that are members of our um, country. So, you know, it's one of those things where I don't think you can have it both ways. And we have historical precedent here where we keep seeing it be this issue of convenience of what cities support. Like convenient for the city or convenient politically expedient? Convenient for the city. So, you know, if this was a southern city and we were saying that law enforcement needs to comply with the federal government for a particular program or to protect a citizenry that is under threat and they don't do it, we would chastise that local government, and we would be right to do so. Well, you can also think about integration of schools. They had to call out the National Guard in order to escort a little girl into a school. It's things like that. I mean, it goes both ways. And so that's why, to me, it is a slippery slope when you do have cities who come out and are very much against supporting a federal agency. I mean, to be fair, we we should be fixing the root causes of 
issues that we have with immigration, but it also is uh, one of the things that we have to think about in the historical view of federal support in our cities. So, I mean, after the the ERPO law passed in 2019, we had a bunch of counties across our state say that they are now Second Amendment sanctuaries. And so we're sort of taking this mm-hmm. this term sanctuary, and obviously they're, they're, they're flipping that um, in the other direction. Look, I'm, I'm a law and order guy. If we don't like the laws, we change the laws. And there's a process that Agreed. we go through to change the law. And you, you, you can't simply have anarchy and say, well, I'm going to opt out of this law or I don't agree with this, so we're not going to support this in our city or support this in our county. Um, frankly, if, the, if folks in the city don't like federal immigration law, then they should be talking to the members of Congress and the two senators from Colorado to be working on that back in Washington, because frankly, that's where the work needs to get done. Congress is not getting the job done. It's appalling, frankly. And, and the reason I think Donald Trump's been effective in terms of making this issue is Congress has done a horrible job on working on this. Uh, the folks uh, in the country, I think, are frustrated by it, and, and the president, frankly, has tapped into something. So um, I'm encouraging Congress to get to work. It's their job. They should be uh, they should be working on this. I want to touch on a little part you said in there, and we're going to talk about, I think this is where Democrats' foresight is just seriously lacking, is where we talk about, like we said, sanctuary stuff goes both ways. Democrats don't tend to think about that. They think about mm-hmm. the immediacy and what's good for them. Whereas I think Republicans actually have great foresight on that. They're not willing to do certain things that they know can come back on them. And so I, I think that's a distinction I want to make there. Sometimes yeah. we have good foresight, sometimes <laughs> not so much. Yeah, It depends, yeah. yeah. But, I think I think in that category, like a lot of times when we think about like the nuclear option in Congress and stuff like that, when the Democrats used it, the Republicans are like, "Are you sure you want to do that?" Right. And then yeah. now it's come back to bite us in the ass. Right. I I don't know who I'm going to vote for for 2020 because I think people are already splitting up into camps over 2020, and I think that's the wrong way for us to go. What do you think, Said? I mean, Kamala Harris already <laughs> has her playlist down. I don't like Kamala Harris. <laughs> You just don't like DAs. I don't like DAs in general. It's (laughs) It's a personal thing. But I want to talk to you about your boy, Cory Gardner. Uh, I don't know if you're friends with him or not, actually. But (laughs) (laughs) what do you think about him? What are his chances of sticking around? I think Cory Gardner is going to have a a tough re-election road next year. I think that Senator Gardner's had to walk the fine line between uh, you know, I think he made a case when he first ran for office that he was going to be a moderate, recognizing where most Colorado voters are. And uh, I think he's voted uh, in a way that suggests uh, that, that he's not a moderate. So um, I, I think he's going to have to make the case. Uh, he, he's also going to have to uh, navigate a very tough line between his support for the president and where he's willing to, to stand up and disagree with the president. You know, I've disagreed with the president on a number of things uh, publicly. I uh, did it yesterday on immigration policy, and I'll continue to speak out. Just because I'm a Republican doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that Donald Trump says. Just mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, any any of my Democratic fans, friends should be uh, free to speak up and, and uh, talk about why they disagree with, with Democratic uh, um, voting records and, and uh, platforms. So... I think Senator Gardner's got a he's got a tough road ahead. At the same time, I look at uh, the Democratic side. I see a number of candidates. There doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of consensus at this point about mm-hmm. who the best challenger would be. Well, I was uh, going to ask you who you think might be the best challenger at this point. So I, I know a number of those folks have been friends with Andrew Romanoff for for many many years, and and I respect a lot of the people 
uh, on that side, but each of them, I think, are going to have to, to be more effective in terms of, of making the case that they would be not only better a better senator, but how they differentiate and distinguish themselves from, from Senator Gardner. Don't underestimate Senator Gardner. He's a very skilled politician. He's somebody who um, I think surprised a lot of folks with, with beating oh, Senator yeah. Udall, mm -hmm. and he's a, he's a likable person. And uh, uh, you know, while I think it's a tough race, I wouldn't underestimate him. Great. This is oh, time yeah. for my plug real quick. Hey, Mike, just leave. Just stop. You're not the best person to run against him. I keep telling you this. Oh, and um, if you are listening, you should just <laughs> you should stop. <laughs> Lied to you as a roommate. Lied when you were across the hall. Think you had a great staff. But guess what? You lost when you ran for governor. And you're going to lose again. And you're kind of wasting everybody's time. So stop. <laughs> <laughs> he has great cupcakes. <laughs> But no, I mean, it goes back to what you say. It's about differentiating yourself and making sure that, you know, you fit the community best. And I, I don't count Cory Gardner out. I mean, it's going to be tough, but he, he won against Udall, so. It would be an interesting race, I think, if we had a third-party candidate come in and, and sort of try to bring some, some sanity to this discussion. Because, unfortunately, what I see is the debate we're going to have next year for the U.S. Senate is a, a very progressive Democratic candidate and a very conservative Republican candidate. And the vast majority of our state is somewhere in the middle trying to look exactly. at these two candidates saying, you know, which of these two people represent me or which which of these two people are going to push or going to move our country in, in the right direction. So I, I hope that we start to hear, you know, it frankly doesn't do me any good as a voter to hear people bash Donald Trump. If I hear the, the Democratic U.S. Senate candidates talk about how they don't like Donald Trump, well, they're not running against Donald Trump. They're going to run against no. Cory Gardner. So talk about yeah. what Cory Gardner has done that you disagree with and distinguish yourself from him and talk about what you would do differently in the Senate. Honestly, I think that was the biggest failure in 2016 is we just exactly. saying, look at this guy. Do you really want him to be it? And that was it. We didn't differentiate why. We didn't explain how we were going to do better or anything like that. Don't you think voters are tired of voting against people? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm tired of picking from the lesser of two evils. Right. I'm black in America. I'm always voting for the lesser of two evils. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I want to go back to something you said that I thought was poignant. You said, and and the presidential level, the Democrats are are going to, to, in order to win, are going to need to pick someone who appeals to a broad amount of people. I think that's a that's a very accurate statement. And I'm not sure it's getting through to a lot of the Democrats in power. It's uh, probably not. No. It's not. I can guarantee you it's not. What, it's a politician's it's not looking, They're listening, not listening to people? Shocking. Oh. <laughs> what would you say that a unaffiliated or a moderate Republican would look for in a Democratic uh, candidate? Somebody who's calm. Somebody who's talking about issues. Uh, and, uh, so I talk, I'm just going to use as an example uh, Mayor, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who I don't necessarily agree with, with Mayor Pete on all of his views on issues, but I like the way he talks to voters about issues. He's serious. He's calm. I really like someone who's going to reason with me because let's face it, we have a lot of bombast going on in Washington on both sides. Yeah. I'm frankly sick and tired of listening to it. And I'd like someone who was thoughtful and calm and would be, would be reasonable and, and talk to me about issues. I, you know, I don't think people, I think it's overblown in terms of what your substantive position is on issues. I think people tend to gravitate towards people that they like, and they're going to vote for candidates that they think are thoughtful and that will listen. Uh, so I hope that that's the kind of debate we're going to have next year. 
uh, but unfortunately, I think we're in for a barn burner, and it's not good for our country. So I like what you said there, and I think that you demonstrate some of that. You're very calm, collective, and you've been very reasonable with a lot of your answers. So what are you running for next? <laughs> <laughs> in 2020, nothing. So, nothing, okay. Yeah. No plans for the future or anything like that? You know, I, I'm, I'm not ruling out any anything down the road, but I'm not running for anything in 2020. I'm going to be a citizen just like everybody else, and I'm going to watch this, and I'm going to be engaged, and I'm going to vote for, you know, the candidates that I think are going to do the right job for our state and our, our country. You have one more question? Yeah. All right, well, one more question. Go ahead. All right. As an, an employment lawyer, how do you think the uh, the legislator in t legislature in 2018 handled the uh, Lebsock case? Uh, so I, I obviously had a, uh, some, some involvement uh, in that. I, I gave a, a speech on the floor of the House uh, where I advocated for Representative Lebsock's expulsion on the grounds that he had retaliated against his accusers. Uh, and I'll tell you, the, the culture that we have had at the Capitol over the last couple of decades is appalling. And the way that we've allowed folks to be treated is shocking. And as an employment lawyer, I tell you that some of the stuff that's gone on down there would not be tolerated in, in the private sector. It's not a fraternity house. It's the people's house. We're there to do the people's business. Um, and I, you know, I think the legislature this year, was they were still hesitant to, I think, come out with what their policy was going to be. And if my son or daughter was going to go down to the Capitol and be an intern, I would be nervous right now in terms of the kind of tone and culture that we have in that building. And uh, I just hope that, that legislators will continue to take that seriously because uh, the kind of conduct uh, that happened leading to uh, the expulsion of Representative Lebsox, Representative Lebsox should absolutely never happen anywhere, let, a, let alone the state capitol. See, you say taking it serious, but at this point, I mean, it's more of a facade of seriousness to me. Yeah, they expelled Lebsox. They failed to expel Baumgartner, but then he resigned after... They've never taken any steps at this point to instill some sort of HR or protection for interns so that they have somewhere to go and complain besides the people that are harassing them. What, what do you think can be done there in order to help pursue some sort of avenues to make it safer for people? Well, it's a, it's a difficult conversation, and the legislators would rather talk about other things. And, what, and would. I think you were exactly right. Once we got past Lebsock and Baumgartner, everybody was sort of like, oh, cool. I'm glad we got that taken care of. We can go back to business as usual. And it should never be uh, tolerated, period. And I, I'm in favor of complete transparency. Uh, you know, I think, and I have, as an employment lawyer, I have a, a, a perspective on this that I think goes beyond, I think, what most, most folks would be comfortable with. And it's you know, it's kind of a hybrid workplace. You've got folks who are elected officials, and um, in the private sector, if somebody acts inappropriately, you have an HR policy, and you have punishment that you can uh, that that you can hand out. But if they're an elected official, your only remedy really is to is to kick them out. You know, frankly, I'd like to see us have more of a discussion uh, during the campaign next year for the state legislature, state house, state senate about this issue, um, because I think voters would be shocked to know. Uh, the kinds of things that have happened at the Capitol and how ineffective we've been in terms of dealing with it because I, I, I think if, if more folks knew about it, maybe it would be an important issue and, and it would stay uh, on top of the stack. I agree entirely. Thank you for your comments on you that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for um, being so right. candid. Do you want to go to final thoughts now? Yeah, let's go. Okay, who wants to go first? Cool. I'll, I'll do it. Go for it. Uh, Brace yourself. Okay. Well, this is my fuck you to my favorite, favorite state in the union, Alabama. 
Fuck you guys. Um, specifically, fuck you, the University of Alabama. If you don't know, they returned a $1.5 million gift, which is the biggest donation that they have received, to name their law school after a alumni who is an attorney down in Florida. This largely stems because his politics on abortion are that, that he looked at the state and said, I don't think people should go to that law school, given what goes on in Alabama right now. Now... One, your alumni is entitled to his free speech. Two, you accepted this gift under the terms and conditions that he uh, that were set forth. It's hard to fund higher education. There are not enough donors giving major gifts to their institutions. And three, his public speech does not discredit your university. And the fact that you took it that way really speaks to your inability to have public discussion about these issues that are affecting your state with the people who will be overseeing those laws and interpreting them in your state. So fuck you, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> My final thought is a farewell to Eris. Sorry, I took yours, huh? Uh, Eris has decided to pursue other avenues. Might be leaving the state. Yeah. We're going to miss you, buddy. Can't it's been a lot of fun. We really appreciate you. See if you want to offer me a tenure track professor position, I'm willing to stay. I don't have one of those to <laughs> offer you. I'm sorry, but I wish you the best, and I really thank you for helping us on this, man. Mine is fuck you, Eris. <laughs> she went the other way. We've been together for so many years, and now you're leaving me. We started it out in 2000, what, 14, 15? Yeah, and now you're leaving me. It's okay, I didn't have to do that either. <laughs> I, I'm gonna but seriously man you've been the best man in my wedding <laughs> you've been my podcast buddy and we've had a lot of good times together and so fuck you Eris <laughs> you got one <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let you go first no I already did <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Uh, well I you know first of all thanks guys this has been uh, a lot of fun and if more people did the kind of thing that we uh, are, are doing this afternoon and, and talking about issues. And I, I would guess that there are things that the more we talk, the more we're going to find that we have common ground on. Um, and there are things that we're going to disagree about. Um, but uh, I guess my final thought would be I'm, I'm hopeful about uh, wh where we are in terms of, of our, our political debate in this country, but I'm very nervous and I'm afraid. Uh, because what I see is us continuing to spiral in a direction uh, that I think is, is not good for the country. Great things about our country, uh, but unless we start treating each other with, with respect, then uh, uh, we're, we're going to be moving in the wrong direction. So thanks for what you guys do. Uh, thanks for inviting a Republican from the suburbs to come in and, and, and hang with you today and, and, uh, yeah, and, and talk about issues. I live in and Aurora. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Um, but uh, uh, thank you. It's been a real, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. So everybody want to say goodbye? Be easy, y'all. Take care. Have a good week.
blows doors to the system Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them We're solid and we don't need to kick them This is North, South, East and Western Yeah, guns blows doors to the system Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them We're solid and we don't need to kick them This is North, South, East and Western 